Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for this beautiful weather you've given to us that we could go to and from church in and enjoy today. We thank you for this building that you've blessed us with. There are many, many things that we don't want to take for granted. Lord, we thank you for being with us every step of the way through this crisis. You have, as we look back on the past six months, we can say never once did we as a church walk alone. Yes, there was a period of time when we could not meet together, but you were still with us. You still provided for us through the generosity of your people. You still led us. You still guided us. You still taught us. You still grew us. You still stretched us. I pray that any good that, if there's any good that comes out of this pandemic, it's this, that you have grown us through this entire experience. You have stretched us. You've shaken us up. You've forced us to make some changes in our lives, to clean house, perhaps. You've forced us to take a look at who you are in the midst of all of this and that you have a plan. You invite us to be a part of that plan and you still got a lot of work for us to do. So Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's distracting us at this time, that you would remove that from us and that we may just be one with you, one with you and your word, that you may grow us a little bit more. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a story published on a popular news website a couple, a couple of years ago that recounted some of the most ridiculous wedding stories that went viral on social media. Here are some examples of my favorites. A wedding planner sent a list of demands to the wedding party of a bride filled with several typos and misspelled words, first of all. And among the demands were, do not have a full face of makeup. Do not wear a hairstyle other than a basic ponytail. And then all in caps, do not talk to the bride. <laughs> and arrive with a gift worth $75 or more, or you won't be admitted into the ceremony. Another bride-to-be decided to shame her wedding guests on social media after most of them were not able to pay the $3,000 per person uh, amount needed to attend her destination wedding in Thailand. When she then just had to make a sacrifice and change the destination to Hawaii, and her guests still couldn't afford the $2,000 needed to attend, she decided to call her guests out on Facebook and threaten to delete them all as her Facebook friends if they didn't commit, commit to shell out that amount of money and attend her wedding. Seems like the kind of person you want to keep being friends with, right? Here's my favorite. In 2017, a couple named Vincent and Manda were planning out their wedding. Vincent is a big fan of clowns for some reason. <laughs> and so the couple had a conversation about whether or not to have a clown at the wedding. You know, just your normal pre-wedding conversation. As you can imagine, the bride-to-be was initially against it. 
but because she loved her fiance, Manda told Vincent there could be a clown at their wedding if he really wanted it. Vincent then changed his mind and decided not to have a clown at their wedding. Well, Vincent then got the idea to pull a prank on his bride and had his brother dress up like a creepy clown wielding a knife and stand in the background of some of their wedding photos without Manda having any clue. <laughs> Manda went an entire year after their wedding before she discovered that this had even happened at their wedding when Vincent surprised her with this wedding photograph. Talk about a shock on your first wedding anniversary, right? Surprise. Thankfully, Manda had a good sense of humor about it, and Vincent's post about it on Facebook went viral. But when we think of extreme happenings before and during weddings, nothing really compares to the extreme happening for the wedding of a king's son in Jesus' parable that we'll be looking at today. There are a couple of extreme reactions to events connected to this certain wedding that will shock Jesus' listeners and reveal crucial truths to us about the coming kingdom of Jesus on earth. You don't have to look at that picture anymore. <laughs> so if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be starting in verse uh, 1 in Matthew 22. If you didn't bring your Bible, uh, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to verse 1. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And we read, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Before we get into the parable itself, I just want to pause for a second and review who this parable is directed to, because that will inform what the parable is about and how it's best interpreted. This is actually the third parable in connection with the parable we discussed two weeks ago and the parable we discussed last week. To who were these other two parables directed at? The, the, the chief priests. The chief priests who insisted on interrupting Jesus while he was in the middle of teaching a group of people in the temple just to try to trip him up. The only point of them interrupting him was just to try to trip him up. Jesus has already directed his first parable at them by comparing them to a son who continu continually refused to obey his father, and then his second parable compared them to evil tenant farmers. In the first parable, those who the chief priests considered sinners would enter Jesus' kingdom well before them. And in the second parable, Jesus prophesied that they would kill him as God's direct representative and then warned them that they would be severely punished for doing so. We'll see what Jesus reveals to these chief priests in the story he tells them next. We read that we pick up in verse 2. So Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. As one biblical scholar notes, rabbis up to this point would tell parables that included a king's son and a wedding feast. And always... The king represented God, and the king's son represented Israel, and the wedding feast represented the coming kingdom of God on earth. Because we know there are plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom of God on earth. 
So by Jesus opening up his parable this way, this was no surprise to either the group already surrounding him and overhearing this story, nor to the chief priests, because the rabbis would tell this kind of story all the time back in Jesus' day. But as we'll see in Jesus' story, the repre- so, so as we'll see in Jesus' story, the representations are similar. They're similar. The king is God. The wedding feast is his coming kingdom. And the king's son is Israel to a certain extent. To a certain extent. But I'm sure that in other Jewish parables about a king's son and a wedding feast, nothing turned out the way Jesus' story would. Because in Jesus' story, the king is God, the wedding feast is the coming kingdom, the king's son is Israel, but more so the fulfillment of Israel, who we all know is Jesus, the one telling the story. So even though Jesus' story starts out the same way as many other stories of rabbis of Jesus' time, it already starts deviating from the norm by verse 3. And he sent out his slaves to, tell, to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, similar to what we talked about last week, even though some, of these, some versions of the Bible, including the NASB, translate this as slaves, this should properly and best be understood as royal servants of the king. In fact, in Jesus' time, royal servants were actually held in a higher social class than so-called free peasants. Some of these were sent to places as the king's direct representatives to bear the king's message to that place. So when the time for this wedding feast came, the servants were sent out to the surrounding city under the king's domain to tell those invited it was time to come to the feast. Now in Jewish culture, committing to come to a wedding was a lot bigger It was a lot bigger of a deal than it is today. Usually, today, a wedding lasts for how long? One day, right? Maybe a weekend, but usually one day, the the ceremony and the reception. Both the ceremony and the reception happen on the same day, and then you wave to everybody, and everybody goes home. But in this time period in culture, a wedding celebration lasted for seven days days. It lasted for an entire week. However, those who were originally invited were most likely nobles and aristocrats. They paid others to do all their work, and so they had a lot more leisure time to spend on going to, say, seven-day wedding celebrations. And since it's implied that an invitation was already sent out, and these servants were merely following up on these previously given out invitations, these aristocrats really had no reason or excuse to refuse to come. And for these nobles and aristocrats to refuse to come, it was more than just scandalous. It was more than just rude. It was more than just humiliating for the king. Think about it. Who was sponsoring and paying for this wedding celebration for his son. The king. The king. This wasn't another fellow noble or aristocrat. These guys were refusing. This was the king over the entire area. So for these nobles and aristocrats to refuse to come, 
They were essentially calling their loyalties to the king in question, and the king could even see their refusal as downright what? Treason. Downright treason. Similar to last week's parable, if this happened in the real world, that would have been it, right then and there. The king would have threatened those lords and nobles, hey, if you don't come, I'll strip you of your lordship and your lands and give them to someone who will appreciate loyal to me. That's what, have, what would have happened in the real world. But instead, the king gives them all the benefit of the doubt and extends one last invitation to them. Verse 4, again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Just come. Come to the wedding feast. There's nothing stopping you. This time, the king describes all the great lengths he's already gone to to make this feast worth their while. He's described how all the best and choicest sources of beef and chicken and all sorts of delicious meats have already been butchered and prepared. Everything else is already prepared and waiting for them to come enjoy themselves and celebrate his son's wedding. He basically says, look, it's all ready. Just come. You won't regret it. Just come. But instead of waving off, this reiteration of the original invitation, the king's lords and nobles do the unthinkable, and Jesus once again shocks his listeners with their behavior, verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. That is absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? Even if these lords and nobles just did what is recorded in verse 5, they paid no attention to the, to the servants and they just went their own way, it still would have been enough to incur the king's fury. Ignoring the king's invitation a second time, and in and of itself, in and of itself, was outright disrespectful and dishonoring to the king and was treasonous. They didn't even try to make up an excuse. Do you see that in verse 5? They just didn't pay attention to him. They didn't even say, well, I've got to do this, so I've got to go do that. They just ignored them and left. They didn't even try to make up an excuse. They turned around and wait, went back to what they were doing without saying a word. Think about if somebody did that to you. That would be very rude, wouldn't it? But then what they do next is absolutely abhorrent. Some of these lords and nobles who even, as they are what they are, and are what they are because of their loyalty to who? The king take his direct representatives and abuse them and kill all of them. They are even who they are and what they are because of the king. And they just took his direct representatives and abused them and killed them. That is just indescribably atrocious. Who does that? It's like these lords and nobles want to send the king the message 
that they hate him and want to be as disloyal, unruly, and dishonoring as of subjects as they possibly could be. They don't want the king to miss that at all. They want it to be as clear as day. And all of this is just because they didn't want to go to a party. That's all that all this was about. They just didn't want to go to a party. Like we open up this morning's message with, talk about an extreme action before a wedding. The king's reaction is quite understandable at this point. Verse 7, But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And this is the extreme counteraction to what these lords and nobles did. The king would not be humiliated and disrespected in that way, much less have his direct representatives destroyed like that without retribution. So the king sends his armies to the surrounding city, destroys all those lords and nobles, and then decimates their city with fire. As we'll see, there is no end or limit to the king's wrath at this point. The part of those lords and nobles in this story is obviously now over. That part of the lords and and nobles is over. It's closed. That chapter is closed. So Jesus switches gears here now. After the king's initial rage is assuaged somewhat by his revenge against them and their city, he looks around him and still sees that there is a full-blown wedding feast all ready to go, with no one to come and participate. So the king comes up with a new plan, verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, obviously, these weren't highways as we understand highways today, as high-speed overpasses with barreling 18-wheelers on which you wouldn't find anyone just hanging out. These were the main marketplace streets where everyone and their brother would go to to buy that day's food or haggle over something or conduct other business. There were people from all walks of life there from all kinds of backgrounds and ethnicities and races and religions and faiths and socioeconomic classes and occupations. People from all kinds of walks of life there in that marketplace. Notice what else is said about this new round of wedding guests. They're taken from both what? Good and bad, right? Good and evil. There wasn't a prerequisite of previous morality that made it possible for these guests to attend. There were those who the the rest of society saw as upstanding and moral citizens, and there were those who the rest of society saw as immoral and even criminal. And that's where the king now wanted his wedding guests to come from. The king took quite a pendulum swing from the social classes of his original invitees completely to the other side, didn't he? 
At this point, he did not care. He just wanted people there to celebrate his son's marriage and to enjoy all the work he put into this feast. He just wanted people there. That could very well have been where Jesus ended his story, right there. Similar to last week's parable, the chief priests and Pharisees were represented by those murderous lords and nobles. And since we learn from the end of the preceding chapter that the chief priests and Pharisees understood that they were the evil tenant farmers in the last parable that behaved in the exact same way as these lords and nobles, it doesn't take a far leap for them to understand that Jesus was talking about them as the lords and nobles in this parable. And neither was it, for a, neither was it a far leap for the group of people surrounding Jesus to think the exact same thing about the chief priests and the Pharisees. Same with the second round of wedding guests. This time, the similarity is with the first parable in this three-part series Jesus gives. The chief priests and Pharisees were the second son who continually refused to obey the father, while the so-called sinners were the first son who eventually did. And here, it's the so-called sinners who end up being the actual wedding guests in the coming kingdom of God, while it's the chief priests and Pharisees who suffer destruction. And the city of the lords and nobles that was set on fire, this is another prophecy. And it's a prophecy that's already come true by this point in history. Because the chief priests and Pharisees rather wanted to kill God's son, the city they were religiously in charge of is set on fire. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Romans came and besieged Jerusalem and destroyed all its walls, save the western wall, known today as the Wailing Wall, and set the city on fire and destroyed the grand temple that Jesus was standing in at that moment while he was speaking this parable. And God, the king, allowed all of that to happen, partly because those entrusted to steward that city religiously went and killed his direct representative, his son. Jesus, uh, Jerusalem was never the same, and all the Jewish people were scattered across the world, and all the records of their tribal identities were destroyed. But the true king, Jesus, will one day return and will one day rebuild the city of Jerusalem and hold the celebratory wedding feast of the inauguration of his kingdom on earth. But there's a catch. There's a catch. And that catch is what Jesus ends the end of his story with. Verses 11 through 12. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The celebration had begun. The king is making his rounds around the tables, filled with these new wedding guests, making appearances and small talk, 
and giving those guests the opportunity to profusely thank him for his invitation to them and commenting on all the decorations and delicious food. And all of a sudden, something stops him in his tracks. Every single person who is there enjoying this feast is dressed appropriately for the occasion except for one man. He's the only one not dressed for this occasion. Now we might initially think when we read this, well, what did the king expect? He just went out and dragged in all sorts of people from all sorts of amounts of money or more likely lack of money. Why is he unnecessarily picking out this one guy for not wearing appropriate wedding clothes? That guy might not have had a penny to his name, let alone any wedding clothes. Why is this king being so petty right now after all, everything that's already happened? But here's the thing. As one biblical scholar pointed out, since all these wedding guests were just being brought in off the street, understandably, there's a good chance that only a few of them actually owned clothes fit for a wedding. And probably most of them did not. So what most likely happened is that as these guests arrived, the king's servants let them borrow wedding clothes to wear for the occasion. Now that understanding of this parable is huge. All of these guests, because what does that mean? All of these guests were offered and given wedding clothes to attend this feast. And all but one took them and put them on. They were all too happy to have been invited to enjoy the celebratory feast, so they were all too happy to put on these clean and pure wedding clothes. But this one guy, this one guy was offered the wedding clothes and either took them and threw them in a corner somewhere, or outright refused them, and still tried to get into the feast. But he obviously stood out as the only one not dressed in the offered wedding clothes, and so he gets called out by the king himself. And what's this guy's response? Nothing. Zip. Nada. He's got nothing to respond with. This guy tried to get away with something, got called out for it, knew he had absolutely no excuse, and so was rendered speechless. Let me ask you a question. Was this king, as you know him, up to this point, in a mood to be benevolent at this point anymore? Absolutely not. He had already paid back the original guests for their insolence and cold-blooded murder. And then in his grace and mercy allowed for any Joe Schmo to come in off the street and attend this feast as long as they had wedding gifts, or as long as he accepted the gift of wedding clothes for the occasion. And this guy didn't think he deserved or needed to wear that gift of provided clothes to be a part of this celebration you would naturally think that this guy would simply get thrown out. And he does, but Jesus adds something to this that doesn't necessarily go along with the story. And that's incredibly telling. Verse 13. 
Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out. That is what you would expect to be the ending of this parable. But he goes on to say, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's something Jesus adds that doesn't necessarily go with this story. And that's huge. That's incredibly powerful. Tying this guy up and then throwing him out into the night goes along with this story, seeing as the king's patience is already understandably thin. But the second half of this is something Jesus adds as part of the interpretation of this story. As we've seen, this description of a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, we've already seen this a couple of times already in our series on Jesus' parables. This is nothing new. This is a term meant to describe intense and overwhelming emotional and physical torment. The idea of banishment from the king's presence goes hand in hand with this description of hell. As I've referenced before, the fact that this is Jesus giving this story and Jesus giving this description of hell is extremely poignant. Anyone who claims that Jesus just accepts everyone regardless of their sinful behavior and is completely accepting of that sinful behavior as well has never read these parables. They just haven't. You could never draw that out of these parables. So you're just making it up. Jesus is not the fun-loving, sandal-rocking hippie who loves to go and accept everyone's lifestyle regardless of what that is. So no... so so that so many people love to popularize and promote. Jesus is quite clear about who he is and what admittance into his kingdom looks like. Believe it or not, even though Jesus' kingdom includes people from all kinds of backgrounds, pasts, lifestyles, previous religions and faiths, and political leanings. Yes, political leanings. There is one requirement. One requirement. And that's this. You have to put on the wedding clothes that are extended to you. That's the one requirement. It doesn't matter anything else about you. But you have to put on the wedding clothes that are extended to you. Here's what I mean. Yes, the first step is accepting the invitation in the first place. If any of us wants to enter Jesus' kingdom, we must first accept the invitation. The invitation is knowing that we don't deserve to be invited into God's family, into God's celebration because of our sin. But he's made a way for us to join with him. That way is by him coming to earth as a man named Jesus to take our place on the cross and pay the payment of death for sin on our behalf that we had no hope to pay for ourselves. So by accepting the invitation to the celebration of God, we know we don't deserve to be invited to, God the King has extended an invitation to us anyway. We recognize that Jesus took our place for our sin and ask God for forgiveness of that sin 
because of what Jesus did for us. And by doing so, we accept God's invitation to be made right with him, get adopted into his family, and be given the gift of spending an eternity with him after we die. If we never actually accept that invitation, we're no better than who? Than that first round of invitees that ended up suffering that destruction and will suffer the exact same destruction. If we think we're too good for God or don't need to accept his invitation of salvation because we're good enough on our own standard of morality or flat out refuse to believe the king even exists, we will suffer the same eternal destruction from that king. But accepting the invitation is only part of the equation, as we've seen in this parable. The other half is that we have to put on the wedding clothes. We have to put on the clothes of righteousness that Jesus extends to us to put on. We have to know what is sin in our lives, and we have to surrender it to God's transformation and change in us. Jesus' Jewish listeners would have been familiar with Isaiah's description of being clothed with garments of righteousness and a robe of righteousness. That would not have been lost on them. For us, Paul describes this as putting to death our former selves and fulfilling their sinful desires, and rather putting on the new believer, the new man, as a believer in Jesus. And Paul describes elsewhere that this also means putting on the righteousness that is who Jesus is. And Jesus describes all those who will enter his kingdom as the believing church as this. It's going to look very familiar. She, the church, has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. It's a direct connection to this parable that we're looking at right now. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Not only do we have to be willing to accept God's invitation to his feast of blessing through Jesus' sacrifice for us, but we also have to be willing to put on the clothes of righteousness he extends to us to enter his kingdom. See, one of the biggest lies propagated today, it's a loud lie, but it's a lie nonetheless, is that if you simply believe in God, you automatically get to go into God's heavenly feast. That's one of the biggest and loudest lies propagated today. There are many, many people, sadly, walking around this earth who falsely believe they're getting into God's feast simply because they never murdered anyone in cold blood. And they think they can just live their lives however they want, and it doesn't matter if it's in line with God's clear standards in his word or if it's in clear violation of his standards or if they can make up for it with good works and still think they're getting in. But the cold, hard truth of the matter is, which is clearly portrayed in this story given by Jesus himself, is that if you never surrender your life to God's holy transformation and never put on the extended to you clothes of righteousness, you will be called out. 
and you will be sent to the same fate as those who didn't think they ever needed to accept the invitation in the first place. It's a very powerful, cold-hearted truth. Cold and hard truth. But it's the truth nonetheless. Both fates are the same. If we never accept the invitation or we think we can get in without an invitation, i.e. thinking our good works is good enough, or if we don't think we need to make changes in our lives by putting on Jesus' clothes of righteousness, it's all the same. It's all the same. We know what the requirements are. We will be cast out of God's presence into the darkness and suffer eternal physical and emotional torment. It's not a nice, it's not a popular truth, but it's the clear truth from God's word nonetheless. Accept the invitation. Don't refuse and reject the grace and mercy of the king. He's been extending out his invitation to be a part of his family and kingdom and therefore celebratory feast your entire life. It's been right there in front of your face your entire life. Humble yourself and see yourself for who you really are, a sinner in need of rescuing. Recognize that Jesus paid your sin debt on your behalf when he died on the cross, and ask him for forgiveness of that sin. And then, don't try to crash the wedding. Don't try to crash the feast by never surrendering every area of your life and and trying to get into the feast without putting on the clothes of righteousness and Holy Spirit transformation of your life. You will get caught, and you will get called out. But both accept the invitation and put on the clothes of righteousness and thereby show that you've been chosen to be there because Jesus ends this story with this truth. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. As is written elsewhere, God has chosen who will accept his invitation and put on the clothes of righteousness before he even laid out the foundations of the world. It's his part of his perfect plan that will never be thwarted. You might wonder, well, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? Jesus gives the answer here. Many are given the chance to accept the invitation and then put on the clothes of righteousness. Many are told, many sit and hear a gospel presentation or watch it online or, 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 or hear it from their friend or are given the gospel presentation in a clear way. Many are given the invitation, but only a few accept it. Only a few care enough to both accept the invitation and put on the clothes of righteousness. And that's the point. If you care about doing both, and you have done both, then it's apparent you've been chosen. I am 100% sure that in this story of Jesus, those who came off the street and both accepted the invitation and did everything they were told to and put on the provided wedding clothes, that while they were enjoying the feast, they didn't look around, look over their shoulder and start worrying if they were going to be hauled out of there. 
They did everything they were supposed to do. They weren't wondering if they were going to get kicked out. They weren't wondering if they were supposed to be there or not. They were simply grateful that they'd been invited. They'd accepted the invitation. They'd put on the wedding clothes and simply enjoyed the banquet laid out before them. It was a mere matter of doing what you needed to do that proved you had been chosen to be a part of the feast by accepting the invitation and putting on the clothes. We've all been invited to this feast of God. Have you accepted the invitation yet? Will you accept the invitation or not? Will you care enough about putting on the clothes of righteousness required to attend or not? We've been warned of what awaits those who reject the invitation or think they're good enough on their own, or think they don't need God to change anything about them and bring in line with his holy standard of what he deems to be moral. If we've, if we've accepted this invitation and have put on the extended clothes of righteousness and of Holy Spirit transformation of our lives, let us act like we're there. Let us act like we're supposed to be there. Like we're there, enjoying the wedding feast. Because we know it's coming. We know we're going to be there one day. So let's en start enjoying it now. We shouldn't be walking around with our heads down, kicking a can down the street, saying, boy, this world is just going down the toilet. We should be the ones celebrating, knowing that we already have this feast coming one day, and start enjoying it now. Let me ask you, we've been focusing on this all day. Has God ever let you down? Has God ever stopped walking with you? Has God ever stopped providing for you? Has God ever stopped giving you the strength and boldness that you need to face this everyday life? No. So no amount of crisis or pandemic or economic failure or, or, or protests or things going on in the world right now should do anything to you, should shake you up, should knock you off your foundation because you know what your foundation it is. It is sure, it is Jesus Christ, the same who was yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we should start enjoying that feast now. Amen? Amen. Your eternity has been sealed. You know what's coming for you. You know that you're, you're headed there. As soon as you take your last breath on earth, you're waking up at the feast. You're waking up having entered those doors, sitting at the table, and enjoying the eternal blessings of Almighty God. Let us not be distracted or shaken up by the things of this world. Your king has a lot of work for you to do. Let's not be knocked off. Let's not be knocked off the path. Let's not be knocked off the track. Ask God what he wants you to be doing and then do it. Our king still has a lot of work for us to do. You not only get all of who God is in the here and now, but you always have the heavenly banquet to look forward to. That will never be taken away from you. So let us live as representatives and ambassadors of the true king now. Let us act like who we're loyal to as we look forward to the coming kingdom that he will set up here on earth. This world is not our home. This government, I'm going to step on some toes here, is not our true government. Okay? We have a true government that will be set up on earth. 
one day. The true king has already called us to have our allegiance in him. So let us live our lives and act in the boldness and loyalty and strength and power and boldness that we have as he is our king now. There will be a day when the true king will set up everything right. I know a lot, everything looks scary in this world right now, but this is not the way it's always going to be. Our true king will return one day, and he will set up his, king on earth, his kingdom on earth, and he will set everything right. He will rule over the entire world with his perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And my last remaining question I have for everyone here or anyone who is watching online later is, Will you be there? Will you be there? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you offer to us right now. We thank you for what you offer to us for eternity. Lord, give us the courage. Give us the courage to live for the true king. Yes, to, to honor our, our earthly government, but know that this isn't, this isn't, how it's all going to be. There is a true king who we serve now who will set up his earthly kingdom and set everything right and will rule over not only this country but the entire world with his perfect justice and righteousness. Lord, I pray that all of us here or watching online will be there. I pray that all of us would accept that invitation, put on the clothes of righteousness and be there. I pray that if there's anybody here watching online later who have not, please let them do it today. This is the most important and powerful decision they could ever make in their life. It will dictate everything, that, everything else that happens in this life, and it will seal what will await them for eternity. So, Lord, I pray they would make that decision right now. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to live as citizens of heaven right now. Give us the courage to share you with one more person. Let us have the courage to see beyond this world, to see beyond what this nation is going through right now, to see beyond the restrictions and, and other things in place, and look to you. Lord, I pray that we would, as, as you call us to, as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, set our minds on things above. Lord, let us not have our hearts and minds set on things on this earth. But let us always operate and live and think and act as if we're already a citizen of heaven, because we already are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.